Father, would you give us great strength and grace and mercy to understand what you have for us today, and may we accept wholeheartedly this call to arms that you're empowering us with now. Father, you're equipping us for a fight. Whether we want to fight or not, that fight is coming to us. We've been commanded by you to put on the whole panoply of God, the whole armor of God, so that we might fight and fight well. I pray that we would be fighters all our days, that you would raise up here Christian warriors ready to take salvation and truth into the distant lands so that your kingdom will grow not by force but by mercy. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man whose name was Thomas Cranmer. He had risen from lowly ranks to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was the highest ranking member of the Protestant Church in England. He was a big shot. He served under Henry VIII and under Henry VIII's son, Edward. He was the leading churchman of England of his day. But through an unlikely series of events, a woman named Mary, Bloody Mary, we've come to know her in history, came to the throne, and she was Catholic through and through, and she hated the Protestant religion. The first person that she put in jail was the Archbishop of Canterbury. It was Thomas Cranmer. This is the man who wrote for us the common book of prayer when we have a wedding or a funeral. We read from its pages. Well, for three long years, Catholic apologists would go into the dungeon and they would preach and convince. They would manipulate Thomas Thomas Cranmer into recanting his Protestant faith. And at the end of those three long years, they made him an empty promise that they knew they wouldn't fulfill. They asked him to sign six recantations of his Protestant faith. They promised him that he'd be able to return to a happy, quiet life of scholarship away from the cares of this world. So what did he do? He took his right hand and he signed those six recantations. But Bloody Mary was not an honest woman. And she decided that she'd put him to death anyway. And so before the throngs, before the masses, she pitched a big bonfire. And Thomas Cranmer was to come up in front of everybody. And he would repent of his belief in Protestant tenets. And he, yes, did get up and repent of some sins, and then when it came time for him to repent of his Protestantism, he sent the whole crowd into a frenzy by saying, my greatest sin was signing those recantations. For I believe, as Jesus has taught in his word, that salvation is by grace through faith. And he stormed the burning pyre. And he took his right hand and he put it into the fires first. And he said, since you sinned the most, you'll be punished first. And there Thomas Cranmer died for his belief that salvation comes by grace through faith. He was a man who took a step back 
though I think we can be very gracious and merciful considering the circumstances of that sham of a recantation. But when he was faced with denying the Lord Jesus Christ or standing firm for him, this man rose to the occasion and stood firm in his faith for the Lord. Now, the Lord is calling us here to stand firm. We're going to be talking about this for the next several weeks. In fact, this is a climax to the whole epistle to the Ephesians, and we're going to show you that today. But the first thing I want us to do is just get a little review and preview of what's to come. We've been working through this book, the book of Ephesians, and Paul has just wrapped up a a lengthy discussion on what it looks like interpersonally when we're filled with the Spirit. Our marriages look a certain way. Our families look a certain way. Our careers look a different way when we're filled with the Spirit rather than a spirit of the flesh. Now Paul has wrapped up that section, and he's going to begin an entirely new command, an entirely new call based on what he's previously said. We have now entered the last section of the book of Ephesians. And I must admit, I say that with some sadness because I've grown to love the book of Ephesians. And if you look at verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. And it goes all the way down through verse 20. He says that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That's our section. And then he has a few um, greetings and blessings to to be said in the final two or three verses. But this is the, the last main bulk section that we'll study. And there is a grand theme in these verses that he is pursuing. And we're going to be reviewing these over and over again in the coming weeks. The Apostle Paul is trying to get us to rise to access God's power through prayer. Okay, I want us to notice right here in the very first words, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Three words for power. Now, go down uh, to... Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you shall extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is a call to access God's power through prayer. Paul doesn't want weak fledgling Christians who are just getting by on a daily basis. He wants strong, mighty warriors. And we will access that by getting to God, most specifically, as we get to him through our relationship with him in prayer. God's power through prayer. That's the final section that Paul has for us in this letter. And today, what we're going to cover is the introduction to this call an introduction to this power through prayer. And it comes in verses 10 through 13, and I have two very simple points that we're going to follow today. So if you like to write notes down and you like to have the two points, there will be the two main points, and we'll cover these, and then we'll have some applications. Number one, the first phrase I want us to call to our attention is a call to arms, and the second one is strength to stand. A call to arms and strength to stand, and we'll limit ourselves to verses 10 through 13. And like I said, this will primarily be an introduction to this power that we have through prayer. 
call to arms and strength to sin. Let's get that first one down, call to arms. I want us to notice that very first word in the section of verse 10. Look right there at your translations. It says the word, finally. Now, believe it or not, that word is a very special word. Now, we could take that to mean if you were hanging out with your friends and you're having a dinner party and just before your friends wrapped up and went home for you and you said, hey, before you go, let me just say one other thing. It'd be kind of a passing comment as they leave the room, as they leave the house. Or perhaps you're sitting in a college class and the speaker's wrapping up and the bell's about to ring. He says, hey, before the bell rings, don't forget your quiz on Friday. Sort of an addendum tacked on after all that, or it could be taken like this. After all that's been said, let me just briefly summarize. That's typically how we read that word finally, but I want you to know Paul uses a different word. He uses a special word that actually means something more like this. Having said everything I've said to this point, all of that is preparatory. All your inheritance in Christ, all your position in the church, all your knowledge that Christ has been given to you as the head of all things, all your spirit filling, all your wealth in Christ Jesus, all your convictions that you're sons of God, all of that, having said all of that, that has prepared you for this culmination. It has prepared you for this one thing. I've been writing this entire letter to tell you. Be strong in the Lord. Stand firm in the power of his might. Everything into Ephesians to this point has been preparatory to command you to be strong in the strength of his might. This word isn't a conclusion or a recap or a review. It's to alert you that the entire point of the previous five chapters and change has been to get you to this point so that you would be strong in the power of his might. It's what Paul's been talking about all along. And it's what he wants the result to be of this letter for us. And now, dramatically, he's calling us to a fight. This word is extremely important, of far greater importance than we might expect. I want us to notice that when using this word and using this sort of motif, Paul is drawing together lots of different aspects of this book. So let's read very quickly here in verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Okay, Keep that phrase in mind. Now, flip back with me to chapter 1. Flip back with me to chapter 1, and let's look at verses 15 through 20. He says right there, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, And your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now let's go down to verse 19. So that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul's about to talk about heavenly places. You see right here how he combines these themes. He's been praying that you would know the power that he has for you. And here he's telling us to be strong and to access that strength through prayer. 
That was preparatory for this command now. He's been praying that we would have it. Now he's commanding us to have it. Let's go to chapter 3. Turn over with me to chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Flip over there with me. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. This is a prayer, you see. Go down to verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses the knowledge of God and you may be filled with all the fullness of Christ. Here again, Paul is praying for your strength that that knowledge would result in fullness and power and might. Go to chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. Go to chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. Paul says right here that he gave apostles and prophets. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into this strong and mighty body. All through Ephesians, Paul has been telling us what he's been praying. And he's been praying that we would know something and that knowledge would result in strength. It hasn't been so much of a command. It's been instruction. But now with this finally, he says, let me take these prayers for knowledge and strength and let me put them into a command. Let me make them imperative. It is imperative that you be strengthened in the power of his might. It is imperative that you allow this strength to flow through you. It is imperative that you put on the whole armor of God or you're not going to make it. There's a strong urgency in this power. I want us to notice in this call to arms that he's praying for true power. Let's go back to chapter 6. True power, literally, he says, be being strengthened in the Lord and in the power of his might. And right here, he insists that this power, this power, this strength, this might that we're to be being strengthened by has nothing to do with our talents, our wherewithal to pull ourselves up, our stick our willpower. It has nothing to do with our gifts or callings. The only power, the only true source of power is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is God's power. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Notice that we're to put on God's armor, not ours. There's a source of our strength, and it's the only place for true strength. Paul says in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, let every person who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But God is able. When we are looking to ourselves, when we're thinking of ourselves as a place of strength and might, we are bound to failure, but Paul is directing us. He's pointing us passionately to the truest, most potent 
most certain power that we can possibly have in this call to arms. Now, third, I want us to notice that he is telling us that we can find this power, we can find this capability. We can find the wherewithal to stand in the evil day by putting on God's armor. Now, when we talk about, it's literally the armor of God. Okay? Let's think about that idea for a second. The armor of God. What is that? How many of you have typically thought of it as armor that is merely metaphorical? It's merely a picture. It's a nice picture of how you should think. Or, it's something that God distributes. God gives you a shield. God gives you a breastplate. God gives you a helmet. God gives you shoes shod with the preparation of the gospel. I would venture to say most of us think of it that way, right? Is that you? What if I told you that this is armor that God himself puts on. That God himself goes out arrayed for battle. And he also has, for you, the same armor that he wears. You need to write down uh, Isaiah. Isaiah 59, verse 17. Isaiah 59, 17. I'm going to turn over there. I'd encourage you to, but I know it's a bit of a stretch over in your Bible, so you don't have to, but if I were you, I would turn to Isaiah 59, verse 17. This is almost certainly what Paul has in mind and that he's expanding on. Let's look at verse 16. It says, The Lord saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He, that's the Lord, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So when God goes out, mighty to save, to fight for souls, he has armor that he puts on to fit himself for battle. And God has, in a sense, the same sorts of armor for you. And you can share in that. You can have that. And what's even more, and this brings us to our second point of the day, strength to stand. Without God's armor, without God's might, without God's power, you cannot stand. You will not stand. You will be sifted as wheat. You will be driven off. You will be riding on the waves, devised by men, and carried away. You will be hurt by your own passions and desires. You cannot, you cannot stand in this day without the power of God, without donning his armor. And this call to arms, this strength to stand from Paul is a desperate plea. He's pleading with you. He's 
commanding you, yes, but there's a sense in which he's also begging you. I want you to notice that from verses 10 through 14 of chapter 6, Paul uses four direct commands. Here are the commands. Be strong, put on, take up, and stand therefore. Be strong, put on, take up, stand. This is urging, isn't it? He's telling you, be strong. It's not the sort of thing that he says just once, sort of off the cuff. It's over, it's repeated, it's continual, trying to get you to rouse to victory. In verses 10 through 14, he does something more than that. He gives us more commands. He gives us these sort of sub-commands. We don't know if they're to be taken as direct commands, but they sort of fall under. He says that we need to put on, put on the armor of God so that we can stand against. We need to take up the armor of God so that we can withstand. And having done everything, having worked out everything, to keep standing. And I want us to notice that we are to stand, we are absolutely to stand our ground. We're not to back up an inch. God expects us to plant our feet on his word and keep them there and refuse to back up even one little bit. Now notice that God's not telling us to advance. That's God's job in one sense. What Paul's trying to do is shake us. He's trying to rattle us out of our comfort zones. The people of Ephesians, of Ephesus, were a lot like us. Very modern city. A lot of scholarship in that city. A lot of diversion. A lot of entertainment, athletics. Wealth, oh my, was there wealth in that city. Paul is shaking them from the numbing effects that all of those things can have on people, and most definitely have on us if we're not careful, aren't they? We begin fighting for a way of life. We begin fighting for things, getting passionate about what will will continue what we love, something not God. And Paul is trying to shake us, to get us to see that we fight for something bigger, something we can't see, something beyond us. He's calling us to battle. He's trying to shake us from our malaise, from our sleepiness, to wake up and to be prepared to fight. We fight, by the way, against implacable foes. We fight against implacable foes. Look at verse 11. It says that we fight against the schemes of the devil. This word schemes, is uh, we get our word method from it. In other words, our, our adversary, the devil, we're told in First Peter, is like a roaring lion going around seeking whom he may devour. But the devil isn't dumb. The devil employs methods. He employs means. You need, not, you need only go back to the garden scene of Genesis 3 and see how the devil very smartly and astutely attacked only the woman with twisting of God's words. He got to the man by 
convincing the woman to take part. It was very thought through. It was all thought through by the devil. And we wrestle against this foe that's far superior to us. And he has a method. He has a scheme. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. But he will sift you. And he'll, he's willing to wait a long game. He's willing to feed you what you want to hear for a long time before closing the trap on you. The devil is crafty beyond our imaginations. We also fight, verse 12, against the devil's vast dominion. We're told in verse 12 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the the imagery of darkness in the book of Ephesians has been ignorance, knowledge without God, all the people in the world that are going their own way without God. Paul says that there are authorities who rule over that ignorance and over that darkness, and like any enemy, they get really upset when their territory gets invaded. When you go to an area that's dark, don't expect the darkness to give up their ground easily. They're going to stand and fight. They're going to attack. You face an unseen, scheming enemy who has a vast horde of lackeys, authorities and powers and rulers, demonic forces. And Paul says that it's pervasive. We get little hints of this in the Old Testament. Do you remember that story from Elisha? Remember that story? He says the 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 army got sent to take him alive. And his assistant was like, oh man, the army's here to take you. They're going to kill you. And Elisha says, yes, but there's more with us than there are with them. The assistant says, what are you talking about? There's a whole army out there and just two of us. And Elisha says, oh, Lord, would you, would you open his eyes? Open his eyes. And God did. And what the man saw was a heavenly army that surrounded them through and about. There were unseen forces, and when the curtain got pulled back, this man who was accustomed to only seeing with his eyes was blown away at the heavenly battle going on around them. Daniel was praying, and his answer was delayed for some time because the angel sent to deliver him the message was delayed with the heavenly struggle. Paul is sobering us. He's telling us that there are enemies who are implacable and evil and will sift you and hurt you and kill you and take you and will do everything they can to dishonor you and shame the Lord. And they are after you at every moment. They're after you right now. You can't see them but your struggle is against them. And one day when the Lord opens your eyes, you're going to go, how did I manage that? Well, you didn't. It's 
the Lord who strengthened you, and you need the power of his might. Paul says that we not only face a scheming enemy, we not only fight against a vast horde of his evil lackeys, but we fight against the backdrop of evil times. Verse 13, he says that he wants us to be strong and in the power of his might so that we will be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. These evil forces have created an evil world that the Bible calls the cosmos, the, the, the world, the prince and the power of the air rules over this present ignorance and darkness. And it's an evil time and an evil day. And you stand against it. And Paul is desperately calling you to take up the strength of God, otherwise you will not make it. You stand not a chance. That brings us to our third point of this second section. Paul is calling you to stand your ground. He's calling you to stand your ground. Don't back up. Do not back up. <laughs> when I was an eighth grader, I played on the basketball team, the junior high basketball team. And there's always one kid in the junior high ranks that uh, hit adulthood about three years prior to everybody else. <laughs> there's a kid on one of the opposing teams. That he went to uh, Colonial Hills. I remember the name. And he stood a head taller than everybody. And I think he was going to be big to begin with. But my job was to guard that young man and somehow keep him from scoring fewer than 40 points. Okay? <laughs> I don't think I succeeded. He was a beast. But I remember my coach, we, we, he, he was a firm believer in the authority and inspiration of the Bible and man-to-man -man defense, okay? <laughs> and, and he said, Baker, you will sink your hips, and you will not back up. If he runs over you, he runs over you. <laughs> but at least he has to pick up his dribble, okay? <laughs> and that's a win for us. And being a 14-year-old eighth grader, I rose to that and did not, did not want to back up an inch. We played that team three times. And every game I would be so sore from getting run over and hammered and hit. But coach said, do not back up. And so I didn't back up. I tried not to anyway. Well, this gets taken to an entirely different level. Paul is, Paul is tapping into an ancient war technique. Okay? Now, if you don't mind me just explaining a little bit of this, I think it'll help us understand why Paul is so insistent that we stand. From the time of the Romans all the way to the invention of gunpowder, warfare had one basic strategy. The enemy would create a line shoulder to shoulder across the front. And then they would stack up in ranks. Military historians call it defending in depth. 
So you'd have a line of soldiers, shoulder to shoulder. Just behind them, another line of soldiers, shoulder to shoulder. Just behind them, another line, and another line, and another line. And the Romans perfected this strategy. They had shield bearers in front who had shields as tall as they were. They had spears and swordsmen. And the entire idea was to create a line that could not be penetrated. Because, again, in ancient warfare, the whole idea was to penetrate your enemy's line or to somehow get around behind them. Generally speaking, you couldn't get around behind them. You had to punch a hole through their line, and then you could run through in mass and create havoc and chaos. Punch a hole right through their line. Disciplined armies, like the Romans, would inevitably have their lines broken. But with discipline and drill and strength and training, they would simply draw back and reform the line. Yes, they lost a little bit of ground on the battlefield, but they kept their line. There was one thing that could never be tolerated in this form of warfare. There was one thing that created disaster. It created what they would call a rout, mass murder, unconscionable defeat. And that was a soldier dropping his stuff and running. The soldier got scared and timid and abandoned his post and turned his back and fled. That created a breach in the line that couldn't be recovered. And so the entire focus of training and tactics in the Roman army was to stand stand. You stand and guard your friend. You stand for the person to your left. You stand for the person to your right. You do not back up. You do not go. You do not break ranks. You do not turn and run. You stay and you stand and you fight. And frankly, that's the only way you're going to live. If you get scared and you throw your stuff down and you run, we're all gone for. So you will stand and you will fight. And that's how they train their soldiers. And so Paul is telling us right here, Stand. Do not back up. Do not go away. Do not run away. The person on your right, the person on your left, the person in front of you and behind you depend on you staying right there. And if all you do is manage to stand in God's power and God's strength, stand firm and hold that line, you'll win. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. We don't even have to advance. We simply need to stand firm and prevent any breaches taking place. Paul is not just using ancient Roman military techniques. In Isaiah 40, verse 11, we're told to stand. Or in Nehemiah, chapter 4, the people of God kept building that wall. Some people would stand guard while the others built. They weren't advancing. They weren't going off into enemy territory, but they were standing, guarding, waiting. Not 
abandoning their post. There are some classic Old Testament examples of people who stood against the evil day. Do you remember Daniel? Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And everybody was supposed to bow their knee to the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And what did those men do? They stood. They stood. The king called them in front of him. Why don't you boys, why don't you boys kneel down? I'm going to throw you in the, the fiery furnace if you don't kneel down. And they're like, well, whether we burn up or not, it's not our business. But there's a God in heaven who judges. And we will not bow. We will stand. They were spared. They got thrown in the furnace. And the angel of the Lord protected them. Remember Daniel. The magistrate said, you can't pray to God anymore. And so what did Daniel do? He went home, opened up his window so everybody could see him, and he prayed. <laughs> they got called in to see the king. Did you pray? Well, of course I did. Well, then you're going to have to go in the lion's den. Oh, that's okay. And God delivered him. Remember Exodus chapter 5, Moses ha kept having to go in and stand in front of Pharaoh and tell him what God wanted him to say. Moses didn't bow. Moses didn't apologize. He didn't back up. Every time, God said, go and stand in front of Pharaoh and say this. And Moses went and stood in front of Pharaoh He stood. He stood. Folks, you've been commanded to stand. And I can't soften that. I can't make it easier for you. Your king has given you an order to take up the strength of his might and put on the armor that he himself bears and find your place in his line and stay there. Even when the fiery darts come, even when the enemies attack, even when we're threatened with our lives, we're commanded to stand. That's what Paul's calling us to. Now I have two very brief applications. They're a little longer on the screen, but I'll be briefer with them. Folks, I want you to know I'm not a prophet, and I'm not trying to prophesy. But I think we're all aware that there's a fight coming to us. We're not seeking it. It's coming to us. And we can avoid it. We can avoid that fight simply by calling evil good. Practitioners of this agenda will call us dangerous and hateful and employ words like love and tolerance to denounce us. They'll attempt to tax us and cancel us legally disband us. Their violent rhetoric will rise to the levels of Genesis chapter 19, verses 4 through 10. But we won't bow to that agenda. We're not going to call evil good. We're not going to back up. 
We're going to stand. We're not going to retreat one inch. We're going to stand as we speak the truth to those folks in love. And the truth in love is this. Jesus died for your sins. And he'll forgive you of this sin if you but bow your heart to him. That's our message. That's our, that's our battle cry. But we're not going to stop saying it. And we're not going to call evil good. And whether you like it or not, that fight is coming to us. But of far greater importance is our second one. Of far greater importance is the little individual battles we face every day. For it's in these little individual battles that we face every day that you'll gain strength and enable you to stand fast in the great trials. Please don't think, please don't think that you can lose a hundred small battles in a row and then stand firm for the big one. We know this in every other endeavor of life. Musicians don't practice it until they practice it successfully, not once, but until they practice it, basically until they can't get it wrong. Athletes practice and practice and practice until they do it right in their sleep. They, they breathe it out right. Because they know that when they get into a game, it's not going to be practice setting. They're going to have to fight differently, play differently. We know this in the military. That's why we drill. That's why the, our troops practice. That's why our troops go to the range. That's why we have scenarios where they try to work these things out in the most realistic way possible. And we can't expect that Failures all along will suddenly result in success when we, when we play for keeps. Every day we face a series of little battles. Little warfares, little ones. Tomorrow morning when you get up, are you going to feed your flesh or are you going to sow to the spirit? Tomorrow evening when you're with your family, are you going to serve yourself or are you going to serve others? These are the little battles in which you will gain strength for the great trial where we're commanded to stand fast. And whether it's the one I mentioned before or a different one, I don't know. But we are commanded to stand. Let's pray. Father, would you please, please fill us with strength to stand. Fill us with the conviction that we must stand. Give us, Lord, that, just that conviction, that perseverance, that wherewithal, strength to follow you and to bear up against the evil day and against our implacable foes. May we begin 
by your grace, standing in these little trials that we face every day. May we begin, by your grace, winning our little personal wars in your strength, for your glory, so that in the great and evil day, we'll be able to stand. Now, Lord, would you please bless these dear people. May they do all to stand, and having done all, may they stand firm. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for